Well, we're celebrating All Saints today, which is probably um, a little incorrect liturgically because it's not until Wednesday, November 1st, and then normally you would do this, the feast afterwards. But this lovely choir, which is up here, takes up all the altar space, and next Sunday is a communion Sunday, so Nancy and I just thought it would make sense if we, if we divided and conquered and did, the, and did our, our All Saints choral offering today, and then next Sunday we'll have our regular parish communion. The whole point of All Saints Day is to talk about the vindication and the triumph of the church of God, the vindication and the triumph of the saints. In order to get to this place of triumph, however, to this place of vindication, we have to deal with a question that vexes most of us. And that question is, where does evil come from? Where does it come from? And moreover, what possible purpose does evil serve? And I can imagine all of you are, along with me, on the horns of a dilemma here, because if we say we believe in God, and then we say that God allows evil to happen, we've made God into a monster. And that's a common um, criticism of of us believers, of theists. How could God allow evil to happen? What, What a monster he must be. If God does nothing to stop evil, does that make God weak or indifferent? Is God up against a power or a force or a dark side, a devil that he cannot beat? So the horn of our dilemma here is that we either have to choose between a monster God who allows evil to happen and does nothing to stop it, or a weakling God who cannot stop evil. And neither of those, I think, is a God worth believing in. Now, the entire Bible is a story of about how evil is overcome. It's talking about a coming reversal an unwinding, and an undoing of evil. The technical word for this genre is theodicy, a vindication of God's goodness. And so the Bible's principal message, which we hear in today's gospel, is that what the world takes away, the kingdom of God restores. If we look at the reading today from Revelation, we meet John. We meet St. John the Divine, John the Seer, and we meet John in the middle of his vision, his revelation, We've joined him in the sixth and seventh chapters of this revelation. John sees the saints in heaven, this white-clad multitude from every race and tribe, but he doesn't recognize them. John doesn't know who he's seeing. So the person who is guiding John, this elder, explains to John what he's seeing. Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? John's reply is, Sir, you are the one who knows. The elder replies, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. White here represents righteousness and purity, which is symbolized by the blood of the Lamb. Blood on a white garment should stain it red, but this is just the opposite. The righteous, are, the righteous blood of Jesus stains the saints' garments pure. It stains them white. This stain of purity is actually the answer to a question that's raised in the chapter before, chapter 6, which depicts a scene in which high and low, rich and poor, slave and free, are all in a panic. They know a great day of judgment is coming. In fact, it's already here. And they're worried. They ask, where can we go to escape this judgment? Who will hide us? How can we hide? So they call to the very rocks. They dive under the rocks to hide from the wrath that is to come. They ask the question, who can stand? 
Who can stand during this time of judgment? And the answer is what we read in chapter 7. These you see in white. These you see robed in white, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who can stand. These are the ones who have come out of the great ordeal, a time of great trouble, a time of great evil. Now, when the book of Revelation was written, the great ordeal was the persecution of the church by the Roman Empire. But over the past 2,000 years, the church has experienced many more ordeals. And if you ask me, the church is poised to enter into a new ordeal soon. But we don't have to limit the scope of this passage to persecution in the life of the church. The passage can speak a word of comfort to the trouble that you and I experience now in our lives. John is ignorant here. He's ignorant of God's will, which is why he can't recognize or understand or answer the elder's question. It's why he doesn't know who these people are yet. He's ignorant of God's will and the way in which God makes saints. The way in which God makes saints is through a process of reversal. It has to be explained to John that the saints are survivors. The saints are survivors of many setbacks and losses. The point here is that all of us have experienced setbacks and losses. All of us, therefore, are being made saints through this process of reversal. That is, if we cooperate with this process of reversal. All of us are being made saints through our troubles. Today we read in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. These, these are all troubles being described. These are all hard conditions to bear. And Jesus says that we are blessed in these troubles and in these hardships. What I left out there is how each one of them is reversed. So I will read it again to you with the reversal included. Blessed are you when people revile you. Your reward is great in heaven. Blessed are you, the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who mourn. You will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. So here in Jesus' words on this, in this Sermon on the Mount is the promise of reversal. And so our jobs as Christians, as believers, is to accept these are troubles and to live in anticipation and in faith that they are being reversed and that this is the process by which we will be made saints. Now, I can think of two objections, at least, to this. The first is that this is pie in the sky when you die kind of thinking. Oh, it'll all be fine in heaven when we get up there into the glory. So what we need to do right now in life is just deal with it and suck it up. The problem, the problem there is that the kingdom of heaven is this far-off place. It's quite literally in heaven and not on earth. And so it begs the question, what about the here and now? What comfort is there for the widow? Where is the comfort for the child who has lost her father? Where is comfort and vindication for the man who has lost his dignity and pride because he's lost his way of life, his job? Where is comfort for the prisoner? Where is comfort and vindication for the victim? That's the first objection. The second objection is the why me God objection. Why would God do this to me? What kind of God would do this? How is this love? What this tells me is that all of us here, if either of those objections resonates, and I imagine that they do, is that all of us here have very real and very unmet needs for comfort, for vindication, and for understanding. 
Comfort and vindication come, as we might expect, from being consoled, maybe even from getting even, right? But what about understanding? Where does that come from? Here's the wisdom. Here's the wisdom, the understanding that is on display in these readings. This is what all the saints have understood. They've all understood that God works by, by way of a process of reversal. Once God commits to something, he can't and doesn't back away from it. And God is committed to his creation. God is good, and God made his creation good, which means he very well can't make us ungood. Once God has given his blessing, he can't remove it. Instead, he needs to find a way to curse the sin, to overcome the evil, but to save the good. Today's reading from Revelation shows us that the cure from sin, the cure for sin, and the cure for evil is directly linked to the cross, which is probably the most bloody and the most real thing ever to happen. Don't say that God can't understand grief when he gave up his own son for your sake. A great reversal is underway, one that will comfort us and vindicate us fully in the fullness of time. But the knowledge, the wisdom that I'm talking about, the knowledge of this can comfort us even now, right here, In this time, what this world takes away, the kingdom of God restores. That is the sum total of Christian wisdom. Revelation chapter 7, verse 17 says, The lamb will be their shepherd. The lamb will be their shepherd. You see, this new creation that we're already part of, we're already a part of this new creation, is an inversion of the old creation, where everything in this world is reversed, where the last are first, and where sheep, lambs in this case, are shepherds. The kingdom begins now, or you could say it began 2,000 years ago when all of these events happened, or you could say it began when time was created itself, or maybe the kingdom begins the moment you put your faith in it. The moment you begin to understand, the moment you begin to understand that it all began with the cross where the death of the one man was the beginning of new life for many. This is the great reversal. Once we understand that the great reversal is already underway, we can find our vindication in Jesus' resurrection, which is, after all, our resurrection. I think too many Christians think that the resurrection is just something we celebrate in the spring or on Easter, and that it only happened to one man, this anomaly named Jesus. We tend to hold Jesus up as this person to look at. We parade him around. But we don't necessarily fully grasp that everything that happened to him will happen to us. Now, we can understand the suffering and the betrayal that he went through because we've experienced that. But we should also be able to experience the comfort and the vindication, the rising to newness of life, because the reversal of his death is the reversal of our death as well. And his ascension into heaven where he is exalted in glory at the right hand of God, the Father, is also where we are going. But still, why do bad things have to happen? And back of their happening, why does God allow them? Ask yourself this question. Who else, who else would you rather have your trouble from? Who else, would you, who else would you rather have it come from? Someone who loves you or someone who hates you? The Bible is nothing if not a true story. Evil happens. We know it does. And ours is not a religion of fairy tales or platitudes, of there, there, it'll all be fine. Ours is a religion, ours is a faith 
that looks evil square in the eyes and deals with it. I say it's better to have a God who deals with evil, who reverses it, than to engage in wishful and magical thinking. So don't go there. Don't escape to wishful and magical thinking. Don't blame God for not giving you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because you know, all of us know, that actions have consequences, and we all know that the wages of sin is death. But we have a God. We have a Savior who overcame death. We have a God. You have a Savior who overcame the grave and even hell to make you worthy to stand. That is the reversal, and that is how you become a saint. Now, we can't see that fully yet, but the saints who have gone before us can, and that is why we celebrate them today. You can participate in this celebration simply by giving thanks. You stand before God in a posture of thanksgiving, in a posture of giving thanks for what he has done and for what he is doing, and that is your hope. There is your comfort. There is your vindication, even now. Amen.